Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming out uh, on a cold winter morning. And if you're with us online, we're really glad to be able to worship with you, too. Uh, again, we've just uh, learned so much over the last year of how good it is to be able to connect, even if we're not in the same room together. But we're really glad to be in, uh, able to be in the room. If we're in the room or at home or wherever, we're able to be and stay warm. Amen. We're really glad to be in a place where we got some heat uh, and so grateful for that. Uh, if you are new and you are in the room, we would love to get to know you a little bit better. Please stop by the Welcome Center right outside in the foyer and pick up a free gift before uh, you head out. Our team's out there. They would love just to say thanks for being here today and answer any questions you may have. And if you're online with us, uh, just drop something in the chat there and we'll follow up with you. Or you can fill out that online connection card that Adam mentioned at the beginning uh, at journeyjonesworld.com slash connect. Uh, and we can answer all your questions. Or if you've just got a prayer request, we would love the opportunity to pray for you and support you with whatever's going on in your life. Today, we're going to be in the second part of a series called Saturate. We're going to be talking today about Saturate Us with Your Purpose, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 9 and 10 today. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn uh, in that. If not, don't worry about it. We'll have the Scripture uh, on the screen, and you can follow along that way. Um, but as we uh, get into that, I was going to hit a couple of things because uh, we've got a couple of other things coming up with Saturate. Saturate is not just a series. It's actually a movement of prayer where we're partnering together with uh, a number of other churches across our community uh, to be praying that God would shape us into a community of love, a people of humility, and a people of his justice. Uh, and so with that, uh, hopefully you've been involved in that. Uh, you've been praying along with us, but we were going to have a couple of other things that uh, we're going to be able to share in together as we're praying and fasting uh, as a church and as a family of churches across our city. Uh, coming up, one of those would be this Wednesday. We were planning on and still kind of are planning on a day of prayer from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. where we're going to open the building with prayer stations uh, set up where you can come through if you've got a few minutes. Um, you know, lunch hour, after school, if there is school, uh, anything like that. Uh, but we'll have these prayer stations set up from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, that is contingent upon the weather, so stay tuned with, uh, uh, on uh, Facebook and Instagram and uh, check your inboxes of your email. If you usually uh, send Journey Jonesboro to your junk mail, uh, go ahead and check your junk mail and uh, pick that up, and we'll keep you updated on what the plans are for that. But then the other thing that we do think we'll be able to do for sure is uh, the following Wednesday, we're going to have a night of worship. And uh, we're going to come together on a Wednesday night. We're going to bring students, college, everybody together. If you don't normally come in on a Wednesday night, this is an invitation for you to come together and for us to share uh, kind of as a, as a climax to uh, this whole period of prayer and fasting that we've been leading into. Uh, and we're going to have special guests with us, Clayton Siler, one of, a, uh, our, our, one of our worship pastors. He's going to come back and help lead uh, us in worship along with our team. And so we're really excited about the opportunity to do that. Uh, and so if you will make plans to be here the following Wednesday uh, for that and invite other people to uh, we're going to have overflow uh, space uh, so that we can make sure that have everybody have space and still have all of our protocols for social distancing and whatnot uh, and all those kind of things but we would love to be able to share that together as we spread out over the building uh, and worship God together as uh, and we seek him together and just thank him for what he's done uh, in our lives over the course of the last month as we've been praying and fasting together uh, as we've been going through that so with all that said, make your plans, stay in touch with us so that we can make sure and uh, all be on the same page as we move into the next couple of weeks. Um, hey, uh, let me throw a picture up here real quick. Uh, does anybody recognize uh, this guy? If we throw the picture up there, oh, don't recognize him. There he is. Anybody recognize him by a show of hands? Anybody? 
I don't blame you. I, I didn't recognize him either. Uh, his name is Harry Winston. And, and uh, this guy, he was in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and into the 1970s. Uh, he was called the King of Diamonds in New York. Uh, and so he was notable on a lot, of, a lot of fronts. I mean, you can still go and buy diamonds today uh, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, there, there's a whole company uh, that he founded. But he's notable for another reason. And the, the reason that he is really notable is that he was one of the last people to possess uh, the Hope Diamond. Anybody know what the Hope Diamond is? Uh, it's, a, it's a big diamond. I'll throw it up here like this. Uh, we'll throw another picture up here. It looks like this. It uh, looks a lot like the engagement ring I gave Veronica back in 1995. Uh, it is actually a 45-carat diamond, okay? And it's, it dates back to the 1600s. It has gone through, through kings and all kinds of uh, hands over the course, but it landed in Harry Winston's hands uh, in the, the 40s and the 50s. Uh, and uh, it's estimated to be worth somewhere between 200 and 350 million dollars okay 45 karat it's a beautiful uh it's kind of like a deep blue and you can see it's set and it's got other diamonds around it but that thing is huge right uh and it's housed right now in the smithsonian uh institute in washington dc but harry winston is famous not just because he possessed it but he actually donated this 300 million dollar diamond uh to the smithsonian institute but that's not really the full picture of the story. One of the other uh, notable things about this transaction was, do you know how he got it to the Smithsonian? You would think like an armored car or something like that or, you know, kind of hand deliver it himself or something like that. There'd been like, you know, agents all around with, you know, with guns and all that kind of stuff. No, you know what he did? He actually put it in the mail. He mailed it. Look, this is the actual envelope that the Hope Diamond was placed in and mailed from Harry Winston to Washington, D.C. Uh, I think the tally for the postage was like $145. Only $2.44 of that was actually postage stamps. He actually insured it for guess how much? $1 million. Okay, $300 million diamond, uh, dollar diamond. He insured it for a million dollars. It brought the tally somewhere around $145 or so for the postage. But it got me to thinking, okay, this story, which I, it's kind of a funny story if you think about uh, why you would do that. Like, uh, first of all, why would you donate something that that's, that's that expensive? You know, I mean, that's a lot of money. Like, if you had one of those things, you could sell it, you could tie to the church, you could do all kinds of stuff uh, with that kind of thing. You could make sure that your family was set up for years to come. But no, he made the decision to do this. But another interesting facet of it was imagine being uh, the, the, the postal carrier, the mail carrier that actually held the Hope Diamond in this package. Matter of fact, they tracked down one of the uh, postage carriers that actually transported this envelope to the Smithsonian, and they asked him, hey, what were you feeling and, and what were you thinking? He said, well, obviously, I just didn't want to lose it. I just didn't want to lose it, which is, is, is a good kind of thing if you're a mail carrier. I mean, I don't put, like, checks, you know, in the mail anymore. A lot of people don't even do that anymore because we don't really trust uh, something to get from point A to point B. But this mail carrier, he was like, I don't want to lose it. He said, I had a deep sense of responsibility, but then I had a deep sense of privilege. I had this feeling that I was carrying something of great value. And if you could think about that for just a second, what that feeling would have felt like to understand 
that you were carrying something of great responsibility and great value. And think about that statement for a second. I just don't want to lose it. I say that because so much of what we do uh, in matters of faith in the church is sometimes we forget uh, this is the significance of the great treasure that we carry. We lose that sense of responsibility. And honestly, I think it gets lost on us sometimes the, the worth of the treasure that we're able to carry with us. And I'm afraid oftentimes that what we do because of that is we lose it. We lose the meaning, we lose the depth, and we lose the significance of exactly what this whole thing is about. You see, the series Saturate that we're spending time in over the next few weeks is simply this, is that while we started the year by looking at beginning again, what we're really focusing in on over the next few weeks is what does it look like for us to become a people together? What does it look like for us to actually recapture and reimagine what it would be like for us to be the church that God has designed and desired for us to be? And I believe what it will take for us is for us to not lose some things. And so as we look at Luke chapter 9 and 10 today, what I really want to focus on, I want to kind of treat it a little differently than I normally do. I've got some statements that I want to put in here today just for clarity and give us some hooks to grab onto because I think there's some common things that we're going to see in this passage that quite honestly I've experienced myself. I think that we as a church have experienced some of the things that I'm going to outline today. And I would say that the church at large in the West, which is the only one I can really speak to, is I I believe that we have experienced some of these things as well. I think there's some things that threaten us losing the significance of the message that we carry and we lose our purpose. And so I want to look at the first of those. We're going to jump in in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And the first thing I think that causes us to lose it is that we miss the mission. We miss the mission. Here, let's dig into the passage and we'll see what I mean. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, we're talking about Jesus, obviously. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Uh, Just kind of hitting the pause button for a second. We hit this real briefly last week, but this is setting up a section for Luke and his gospel where from this point forward, Jesus is making a beeline for the cross. Uh, This is where he's moving into Jerusalem. These are really kind of chronicling the last part of his journey. This is everything is about him resolutely setting toward his purpose. This is taking him into lots of different interactions with lots of different people. Uh, And as he's doing that, he's not just going alone. He's actually sending messengers out before him. And this is kind of setting the tone too, if you remember back to where we started the year, if you were with us in Luke chapter 3, where John the Baptist was the messenger that was going before Jesus. Luke is tapping into a Jewish mindset that actually goes all the way back to the prophets. If you remember what John the Baptist 
Baptist had said. He said, hey, listen, I am the, the voice calling uh, as the one in the wilderness. And he's going ahead of Jesus. And he's really kind of a re-embodiment in, in, in a lot of sense for the Jewish people of uh, an Old Testament prophet like Elijah. And so if you study Elijah's story, you can see a lot of typology that will actually uh, reveal itself in John's story. Well, what Luke does is he takes that same motif with John and he moves it forward and he expands it. At the beginning of Luke chapter 9, he begins with uh, the 12 disciples and sending them out. As Jesus is moving, he's not only just sending them out, he's sending a number of other people out. And this is a, a Luke's mindset. He wants us to understand that Jesus is moving somewhere and his message is moving somewhere. And the primary way that his message moves forward is through people. Uh, he's not just going alone. He's actually sending messengers ahead of him. And that's taking him into some, uh, some really some interesting territory. And one of the places that's taking him is, in this case, to a Samaritan village. Uh, we chronicled last week kind of the, the dilemma and the tension that was existent between the Jews and the Samaritans and how that uh, really uh, kind of created in, in this uh, not just tension but a lot of strife. I mean, there was a lot of butting heads to this. I mean, these were two groups of people that had a whole lot of animosity over a number of centuries. Uh, and so they're stepping into real time, into a real world filled with all kinds of interactions, all kinds of tensions, all kinds of uh, dilemmas that are going on. And so Jesus sends his messengers ahead, continuing that motif. He's doing it in a world full of tension. And as he does it, he's heading for Jerusalem. And what we learn at the outset here is that the people in the Samaritan village, they do not accept the messengers and they don't accept Jesus. And the reason that they don't is because they had their own... Uh, they had their own temple set up. They had their own holy city set up. There was a lot of debate between the Samaritans and the Jew which, where the true temple should be and where the true mount is that they should worship on. And so the fact that it's noted for Luke is that he's saying, hey, he, because he was headed for Jerusalem, the Samaritan says, no, we're not going to accept you. That puts everything on the table at this point. I mean, Jesus is on this mission. He sent out messengers. And now these messengers taking this message about Jesus are not accepted. And so this, wants to, this makes us want to set up this idea of like, okay, well, what's going to happen? I mean, you would like to say, well, everybody's going to accept Jesus. Everybody's going to see who he is. But this puts in front of us what happens when the messengers and the message are not received. And I think what we're going to learn is that the disciples are going to show us what it means to actually miss the mission of Jesus. Let me show you what I mean in verse 54. This is what happens. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now get this, this is their response. Their response is, hey, they don't receive the message. I'm going to call down fire. Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn them up? I mean, they've got in their mind, going back to Elijah, if you remember some of those stories, where there was fire coming down from heaven when people did not receive the prophet of God. And so they're, they're tapping into something that was familiar to them. And this is kind of a familiar approach to us. This is where they miss the message. This is where Jesus turns around and rebukes them and corrects them and says, guys, you are getting this thing all wrong. 
Matter of fact, they're, they're asking and they're asking Jesus, hey, God, do you want us to call down judgment? As Jesus is on the path to receive and absorb the judgment of all people, they completely missed the mission. And I think the reason for that is, is because they were enamored with power. They, they were on this trajectory in their life and, uh, where they misunderstood the mission. Why? Because they associated the mission with earthly power. I mean, if you think about John, I mean, we mentioned James and John, and, and they are kind of famous figures in this story. And if you kind of follow along with their story, you can pick up on this. So just a few snapshots. Uh, you might remember uh, a scene, if you've, if you've read through some of the Gospels before, there was a scene where James and John had another interaction with Jesus. Uh, they come up to Jesus and they say, hey, hey, when you are on your throne, because you're the rightful king, when you get on your throne, can one of us be at your right and one of us be at your left? You remember what Jesus says? He says, hey, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink from? Can you go through what I'm about to go through? And they were thinking, oh, yeah, sure, we can, because we're thinking when you get to power, we're going to be in power. They were, they were connected to this idea that's inside all of us that we think that power is the objective of God's mission, earthly power. And they were tapping into that. And again, Jesus says, listen, you have no idea what you're asking for. But that wasn't the only time. There's another instance where John comes before Jesus and there were some other uh, disciples that, that they weren't familiar with, that John and James and the others weren't familiar with, and they came across them, and they were casting out demons. And uh, this baffled the disciples because they thought they were the ones in the position of power. And so they come to Jesus again, John does, and he says, hey, do you want us to go and correct them and tell them to stop? And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. That if they're, if they're not against us, then they're for us. That it's not about our uh, position of power and preserving our position of power. He was constantly having to correct the disciples. And particularly John uh, is chronicled out for us that there was this affiliation and this eagerness, this uh, uh, being so enamored and infatuated with this idea that the message and the mission was about power. And then ultimately, you have this scene. You have this scene where James and John are saying, listen, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? They were so infatuated with power. And Jesus rebukes them. And I think that's important for us to say because there's so many things that will cause us to lose the mission of Jesus. And one of the primary things that we have to be mindful of is that we have within us the capacity to desire power more than the mission of Jesus. Jesus turns and rebukes them. And I think that it, many times within the American church today, I think that if Jesus was to show up in the flesh in the room, I think there would be a rebuke for the church. I think we've seen it over the last uh, several decades where the church has affiliated and tried to preserve and get a foothold of earthly power. And we've mistakenly thought that that was the mission of Jesus. We've supplanted and subverted the very message of Jesus because we have, uh, we've become, an, uh, we've almost made it so uh, inseparable from earthly initiatives that we've forgotten about the reality of the precious treasure that we hold. And anytime we begin to connect it with an earthly movement of power, what ends up happening? We begin to lose the message. And when we lose the message, people get hurt. 
I mean, we've seen it in a number of ways within the church over the years. We've seen it with politics within the church. We've seen it uh, in in just power plays in the church. We've seen it uh, among, uh, among, run amok among American Christianity. And what the world sees from that is they see a group of people that say they are about the mission of Jesus and they associate it with a mission of earthly power and dominance. And the disciples got it wrong. And I think for us to be aware and to be self-aware enough that we have to look at ourselves and say, God, where are we getting it wrong? You see, I think that John, the one that is actually referred to when he writes his own gospel, he actually calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Matter of fact, he actually wrote uh, a few of the letters in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, conveniently named uh, for us so we can track them down. And actually, if you take out uh, his portion of the New Testament, uh, he only wrote about 2% of the New Testament, but 20% of the times that the word love is mentioned come out of the 2% that John actually listed out. He actually refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And I think he had to learn love the hard way. It had to be challenged out of him. And I think what the Lord would want to do and purify us is the Lord would want to challenge it out of us. He would want to call us away from earthly power so that we would not miss the message. And you see it in the passage alone. Matter of fact, uh, uh, it's kind of baffling because Jesus had already told them explicitly what to do when the message wasn't received. Earlier in the chapter, in Luke chapter 9, verse 5, This is Jesus' own words. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Uh, There's so many things you can unpack there, but simply it was this, is that Jesus didn't call them to call them fire. He called them to shake the dust off. That means when someone doesn't receive the, the package, the treasure that you're holding, it's not to say, how can we take them out? It's how can we move on and how can we continue to take the message to places where it can be received? Shake the dust off your feet. Don't, don't call down fire. Don't call down judgment. Don't be enamored and infatuated with power. But instead, see what God sees. And we know, we know what Jesus' uh, motive was. Matter of fact, one of his other closest followers, Peter, was right there, probably uh, was within earshot of all this stuff. Uh, he later, in, in, in a letter that he wrote, he said this about God's purpose. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, and this is his heart, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think what Jesus was doing that day, what the disciples were experiencing as God was challenging this infatuation with power out of them, he was calling them back to the love of his heart because he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. How many times are we quick to anger? What would be said of us, maybe in our online interactions? Would people look at us and say, well, they are slow to anger? In our conversations at work and in a family gathering and with a group of friends? I mean, would people describe us as people that are slow to anger, that we're patient? That our desire is that simply we don't want people to perish. We haven't sat down and said, hey, how can we take people out? But how can we bring people the message of life? See, Jesus' heart that was transferred down through these messengers was simply that 
that this God has a desire and he is patient. And the reason he's patient is he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants every single person to come to repentance. And I think that if we want to hold on to the treasure and we want to become who God wants us to become, we're going to have to not lose that mission. We can't miss the mission. But that's not all. There's another thing that you see in the next part of the passage that I think actually causes us to to lose it. And one of the things is that we define our own terms. We define our own terms. Luke 9, verse 56. Then he and his disciples went to another village. And as they were walking along the road, a man said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. He goes on to say this in the next verse, but then he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I think it's really easy for us so many times to, to focus on uh, our own terms. I mean, think about how we deal in any transaction. I mean, we're thinking about it from our perspective. What can we get out of the deal? What's it going to mean for us? What's it going to cost me? And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus defines his own terms. Jesus defines the terms. We live in a society and a culture where we believe that we get to define the terms. We, we're able to curate, if you will, everything about our lives. Uh, it, it comes with this, uh, this, in, this idea of personal autonomy. I mean, think about uh, what, what you're able to do now that I couldn't do when I was growing up. I mean, used to be, even with songs, like I had to buy the whole cassette tape. You know what I'm saying? Uh, or the whole album. You had to buy that, and you just got what you got, right? You go, and you go to the store. I can remember in Jonesboro, there used to be this store in Old Indian Mall called uh, Hot Dog Rep- Records and Tapes. Anybody remember Hot Dog? Hey, thank you. I got a testimony of a few, few folks in here. Y'all remember they had a plexiglass wall uh, with holes cut in it, and you had to stick your hand inside the plexiglass wall and pull out a cassette. Y'all are like, what in the world is this? You had to pull it out, and you could look at it, but you couldn't take it out of the hole. It was kind of like one of those little uh, weird traps, you know? And if you wanted it, the, the tape, you had to drop the tape, and there was a, conve- a, a literal conveyor belt at the bottom of this thing. And you would drop it. You would go to the cashier. He would flip a switch, and the conveyor would take your tape. He would pick it up, and you would purchase it, and whatever was on that cassette, I mean, this was a treasure. You would open it up, and this is what you listened to. I mean, Huey Lewis and the News back in the day, you know, in the 1980s, whatever it was that you were listening to, I mean, this is what you got. But here's what you get now. Spotify. I curate my own playlist. Like, I, I can make my own playlist. I can make it exactly what I want it to be. I, I, I can listen to exactly what I want to listen to. We do this down to our TV shows. We do this down to our music. We take the same mentality to church, and we take the same mentality to God. We want to curate and define our own terms with God. But this is what the gospel says. This is what Jesus says. Jesus gets to define the terms. And oftentimes when we're trying to define terms, we're, we're doing it 
on so many different levels. We're trying to do it. We're, we're, you know, you see it in this. We see it like, I mean, they're saying, hey, but first let me do this. Well, yeah, hey, I want to follow you. I really do, Jesus. But let me first take care of this. And they give some pretty good reasons. Matter of fact, I mean, they're talking about like burying a family member, you know. Uh, in this particular situation, I mean, most scholars actually believe that this was a, uh, within a year-long period uh, of mourning. Typically in a Jewish home, if uh, uh, like a father would die, I mean, obviously the, the kind of the, the leader of the family, there would be a lot of honor that would be stowed on any person that died, but certainly the father of the household during this setting in this community. And they would typically have two burials. They would do the first burial, and there would be a series of mourning over a period of time. They would put the body in a casket, put it in a tomb. And after a year, after the body decomposed, I know it's a little gross, they would take that out, and they would take the bones out, and they would put them into what's called an ossuary or a bone box, and then they would rebury that. And that's the way that they would go through the mourning. And so most scholars believe that this is within that year period between the first burial and the second burial. And so what, do you, what does that mean for us? That means that this delay, uh, we don't know exactly how long it is. And that's the way we usually approach God, right? Well, like, hey, uh, I'm just going to take my time. I'm going to define my own terms. But here's what Jesus is essentially saying. He says, if you want to follow me, no more excuses. No excuses. And he says, no more delays. No more delays. Because when you have excuses and you have delays, you have distractions. In the church and the people of God, there has never been a time in history where we're so easily distracted by other things. And what happens when we get distracted is we miss the mission, we miss the message, and we lose the treasure. And my fear is that many times, even as a, us as a church, and me in particular, over the last several years, we've gotten distracted. We've made excuses. We make delays. We lose the message. And what got us started on this whole journey together was simply this, is that we wanted to reach people that the church had not yet reached and lead them into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It was very focused it was very direct. But something happens when you get a building. Something happens when you get kind of established as you begin to move into pre preservation mode. And there's all kinds of distractions when that happens. There's all kinds of debates about different things. There's all kinds of things that vie for our attention and, and vie for our resources. But when we lose and we make excuses and we delay and we get distracted... The message gets missed, and when the message gets missed, people get lost. And what God is calling us back to is to recapture, recapture the urgency and the, uh, and the vibrancy of the message that he put on our hearts in the very beginning. It's what you see in this passage is that he's calling people out, and he's being honest about the cost. And he's saying, listen, it's going to be no more excuses. There, there's no time to delay. And you cannot get distracted. Because when the kingdom of God arrives, it demands something of us. What do you think is demanding of you? What do you think is demanding of us? I mean, we will only become the people that actually receive Jesus on his terms. 
Our church, our faith cannot survive if it is a group of people that are enamored and infatuated with power and eager for judgment and it cannot thrive and it cannot become what God wants it to become if we make excuses, if we make delays and we get distracted. What is God calling you? What is he revealing to you that has distracted you? And God is calling us back. But that's not all. If you see what happens next, there's a few other things that come to the surface. I mean, one of the things you see at the very end of this passage is that he appointed the 12 that they may be with him uh, and that he may send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. If you go back in Luke's gospel, basically what this tells us is all the things that we would make as excuses and distractions and stuff like that, at the original call was simply this call to be with Jesus. It was to be with Jesus because anytime anything becomes an excuse, what that actually means is that Jesus is not enough. That Jesus is not enough. And we want to become a people where Jesus is just simply, he's just enough. Like Jesus is enough for me. And Jesus has to be enough for us. That's what he was calling them to do initially was to come together before there was a message and simply be in the presence of Jesus. And this is not a new idea. Over the last week I was reading, I was kind of going back and I was reading uh, in, in the Old Testament and uh, I, I was taken back to a scene in uh, the Old Testament where Moses was interacting with God. They'd come out of the, uh, out of the excuse me, out of captivity. They were, hadn't yet made it to the promised land. They were going through all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, Moses goes up on the mountain and the people, uh, they didn't even know what to do with their freedom. They had to have something to worship. That's when they build a golden calf and Moses comes down and all that kind of stuff. And it's just kind of crazy and chaotic. And Moses is talking to God and God's angry at the people because he had, God just brought them out. And they're already turning their affections toward earthly things. They're trying to find something else to worship besides God. Sounds like a common theme. And in this interaction, Moses is like, hey, God, like, man, don't strike them down. Have patience with them. And God is talking back to him, and they're having this conversation. And Finally, God speaks to Moses, and this is what he says in Exodus chapter 33. The Lord replies, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me from your people uh, and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? He says, what is going to mark us is is not anything else, not anything else, but you simply being enough for us, God. And it's what the disciples were getting wrong in that inter interchange. These people that were saying, hey, I want to follow you. These people that were being called to follow Jesus. It's really a question. Is God's presence enough? And this is why over the course of this month, we're just trying to spend time in God's presence. The goal of Saturate is not to get you to have a morning quiet time or devotional. It's not trying to get you just to loosely pray for 17 names or so of people you don't know just to say you checked the box and did it. It's not the next thing that we're doing as a church. It really is trying to usher us in to say, God, Jesus, you are enough. We're coming into your presence. And my question for you is, is that true of you? 
Are you in a position right now where you're saying, Jesus, I long for your presence? Do you come into this place Sunday after Sunday and do you say, Jesus, I just long for your presence? I really desire to be with you. It's what Jesus, it's what God has always wanted for us. And by the power of the Spirit, we have the opportunity, even in 2021, to be in the presence of God. But we miss the message so many times. We try to define our own terms. And when we do that, we're essentially saying, Jesus, you're not enough for us. How else will the world know unless we have Jesus in the presence of God? But that's not all. The other thing that I think gets us and makes us lose it is that oftentimes, let's just be honest, we go alone. Luke chapter 10 verse 1 says this, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place that he was about to go. Uh, You see the continual theme, right, of sending, 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 sending. Jesus is constantly going. He's constantly moving. He's moving ahead. He's not just trying to preserve and protect He's trying to take a message. He's going to the cross, all those type of things. But here's the deal. There's a transition that happens from Luke chapter 9, verse 1, when Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, and he's sending messengers out into the villages. And now we see that he's actually sending 72 out. Uh, Genesis chapter 10, and there's a lot of other um, historical writings that actually 72, the number comes up a lot. Uh, Most believe that it's indicative of the nations of Israel, the the tribes and how they they had filled out into all these other places. And so the number becomes a little bit significant, but we're not supposed to really get hung up on the number. But I would like to see, let's, let's get hung up on what Jesus was actually doing. What was he doing? He was sending them out, but he did not send them out alone. He sent them out two by two. And the first thing that is in this is that you don't have any names of the 72. Uh, There's no Peter, there's no James, there's no John. Later on, there's no Paul, there's no Barnabas. And I think this is what this means, is this is a group of people that are not celebrities. They're servants. That the movement of Jesus was built on a foundation, not of celebrities, but of servants. And it's got me thinking going into the future, coming out of 2020, all the things that have happened, all the different power plays that have happened. uh, It's become a lot about who can be a celebrity and we follow celebrities. I mean, I'm just to be honest with you from a, this is kind of a transparent uh, kind of statement from me. This is what I found over the last five years, pastoring a church. Uh, pastor in a church, I, I, we have people that, I mean, all week, you might listen to a whole lot of other celebrity pra- pastors. And essentially, you can download and listen to as many podcasts and messages. And I read a ton, okay? I listen to podcasts a ton. But what's interesting in pastoring a church now is we have different people following different celebrity uh, Christian figures. And we, we're following different figures, and depending, I mean, I might have a room like this or have two services like normal. And so you might have 200 to uh, 800 people at times. And we're all following different celebrities. Uh, and they have different takes on things. And then you bring those messages into a local church. And now I'm standing up in front of you or another person standing up in front of you. And we're seeing a divided church. Not because we're not looking at God's word. 
but because we have given ourselves to different celebrities. And now we're trying to create something that's unified in a local group, in a body. And it's really hard when Christian culture has now become enamored with celebrity culture. It's almost inextricable. And we follow these people that, that, and, and that they teach great things oftentimes. But what's happened, I think, so many times with that is we've missed the fact that at its grassroots level, this is not a celebrity movement. That this is a grassroots movement of a lot of unnamed, uncelebrated people. That through the years, the church has been built on the shoulders of servants, not celebrities. And I would hope that moving into the future, that God would continue to refine us to the point where we're not trying to build a celebrity culture. What we're trying to do is we're trying to be faithful, but we're not going alone. Unnamed people just resolve to say, I'm going to be faithful with what God's put in front of me, me, and I'm not going to go alone. Because when we go alone, we miss some things. When we become enamored with celebrity, we miss some things. But when we go two by two, that means that there's some things that are naturally built in to the fabric of the church. Uh, three of them, real quick. There's a laundry list, but three of them. The first thing is support. Listen, to follow Jesus, he makes no bones about the fact that it's going to be hard. And it's going to be hard for you to follow Jesus in 2021 and the next year after that. It, there's gonna, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost me something. And you need support. You don't need to be alone in that. Because if you're alone in that, if you're bearing the weight of that, if I bear the weight of that, we're going to flame out. We're, we're going to be crushed under the weight of that. But he didn't call us to be individuals that follow Jesus. He called us into community for support. But not just support. The other thing he called us to is challenge. He wants to use each other in our lives to hone us and to refine us and to challenge us, to call things out of us. I mean, that, that's why that famous passage in Hebrews chapter 10 is actually talks about uh, spurring, one other on, uh, spurring one another on. I mean, you know, you remember that passage, uh, Hebrews chapter 10, that we gather together and we encourage one another. And how do we do that? We spur one another. And I don't know, I've never been a horse, thankfully, that's been spurred, but I know it's probably not that pleasant. It doesn't feel real good, you know, but it gets you moving in the right direction. It's a controlled response to continue to point you ahead and to push you forward. And I'll be honest with you, I need that sometimes. And I think if I know you well enough, you need that. You need some challenge. And I think what the Lord's calling us moving forward is he's calling us, he's challenging us. He's saying, let's move forward. Don't just try to preserve. Don't play it safe in your personal life or as a church, but move forward. And I think there's another thing that happens when we go two by two is we're empowering one another. We're empowering one another. We're calling out the calling and we're reaffirming the calling on every single person in this body, men and women, young and old. We're saying if God has gifted you, if God has called you, then we're going to be the type of place that we build you up and we empower you to operate in God's calling on your life. That the gospel calls us forward. And so he's called us to do that together. Where are you trying to go alone? And a good way to say that is not to sit there and go, well, nobody is going with me. The best way to move forward is for you to make the choice to say, I'm going to go 
with someone. I'm not going to sit and wait and ask a question, well, who's going to come and pick me up? Why do I not feel supported? Uh, It's time for us to take the initiative and be the one to say, hey, come with me. And I'm not asking you to take five people. I'm not asking you to take ten people. But simply take one, two by two. And it may be a spouse. It may be a friend. It may be somebody that's sitting in this room alone. But it's time for us to actually support, challenge, and empower the calling of every single person in this congregation to move forward. But I think there's a couple of things that have to be called forward too. Because I think there's other things that cause us to lose it. And one of the last things that I think is that we fail to see the potential. The way that Jesus refers to this next uh, portion of that, it's a famous phrase, but I want you to think about it deeply for a second. In Luke chapter 10, verse 2, he told them the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Now, when you look at the world around you, what do you see? What do you see? When you see of the difficulty, you see difficulties out there. You see problems out there. You see enemies out there. What did Jesus put in front of the disciples, the messengers? Hey, I'm going to send you out two by two, and I want you to look out there at the field. Because what I see is the harvest is plentiful. Jesus was not just doing the power of positive thinking. This is actually what God sees. God sees and is motivated by the potential of the world around us. He doesn't, he doesn't try to go out and, and, and call everything out. He goes and says, hey, look, this is where I'm sending you. I'm sending you to the potential. I want you to see what I see. But I think so many times when we look at faith and matters of faith in 2020, 2021, is when we look at the field, we don't see potential. We see problems. But what if God could reignite within us the passion and the perspective to see what he sees? What if he took your job, the one that you've got tension on, it's been a hard year, you know, whatever it is you're putting your hand in, what if it's going on in your family that you've got, you're down about, you're like, man, nothing's ever going to happen there. You look at our city, you might look at our nation, you look at the world, you look at the problem. What if the things that you're looking at right now, what if God could shift your perspective and say, hey, what if you looked at it as a harvest that's plentiful, that's full of potential? What if you went back to work this week, barring the snow, what if you went back to work this week with a harvest is plentiful mindset? Not one that is just captivated by the problems. What if the church became the most positive force for good in our city? That's what we're praying for. That's why we're joining with churches across the city is because we know that in order for goodness to come to our city, we first, as the people that follow Jesus, have to be the ones that are changed. And we have to see what Jesus sees. He sees a harvest that's plentiful. But he also sees the reality that when he looks out there, he sees the potential. But when he looks in here, he says the workers are few. So much potential, but the workers are few. Now, I think he gives us some directives of what to do. This is a reality. It was a reality then. It's a reality now. And so I think the last thing that he tells us 
in this gives us the clue of what we, the last thing that causes us to lose it, to lose the message. And I think it's simply this, that we don't ask and we don't go. What does he do, what does he say in response to the plentiful harvest and the reality that the number of people that are responding to that potential is few and far between? Well, he simply says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. And then he says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. He gives us two things to do. He, he boils it down. He says, this is really simple. I want you to do two things. I want you to ask. This is prayer. When was the last time that your prayer life, what you prayed for, was not just, Lord, what will you do for me? Lord, protect me, protect my family, keep us safe, bless us, Lord. But when was the last time you were so burdened by the potential and you were so in love with the world around you that you looked out your window, you went to your job or your school, you looked at the people that are online with you and you had such a compassion and a love for them that you said, Lord, send me online with your passion, with your love. Send me to work with your love. Lord, raise up our church. Raise up people in our community. I'm gonna ask you, Lord, not just to do for me, but Lord, will you enable us, will you empower us to go and to share this message of hope with the world around us? When was the time, last time you asked the Lord that? But not just that, what if you were the very answer to the prayer that you were asking? I think it's interesting, isn't it, that he immediately follows up, he goes from ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers, and then he says, hey, I want you to go and get to work. Because oftentimes our prayers, we try to fill in the blank with other people. We've got perfect people that should do everything else. People that should serve there. People should serve over there. People should go over there. I'm gonna pray that God will raise them up, but what if what God was doing is he was calling you to pray, to position you to be the answer to the very prayer that you're praying? I think that what Jesus calls us to do is oftentimes not wait for God to answer the prayer through someone else, but to be the very answer to the prayer that we're praying. And I believe that what God wants us to do is he wants us to recapture. He wants us to recapture these things. And I don't know what the Lord may be saying to you, but my hope is that because of the greatness of the message, that we would become a type of people that he wants us to be. And I made a list real quick. I'm just going to read it to you. This is probably not exhaustive. This is the best I could do. But here's what we want. We want to be a people who live out his mission and not our own. We want to be a people who long for the presence of God. We want to be a people who follow Jesus on his terms Believing simply that he is enough. We want to be a people who empower each person in this place to walk in their calling. And we want to be a people who see the potential in others. I think that that is a formula for a move of God. I know it is. And I know it is because that's exactly what got this whole thing started a few centuries ago. And I think the answers to our contemporary problems are an ancient faith. 
I think it's time for us to be called back to what the heart of God is. And if that's what your heart is, that's what your desire is, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna put some prayer prompts up here and we're gonna spend the last part of our, uh, our day together. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna sing and then we'll get out of here. But I, we're gonna put three prayer prompts up here and I'm gonna ask if you would, we're gonna put each one up there for a minute. And so I want you to pray through the very things that are on the screen really quickly. One minute at a time, personal prayer time, interceding, asking God, to send out workers, ask him to shape you, expecting that you would be the very answer to the prayers that you're praying. So if you would, let's get in a posture of prayer and let's, uh, let's follow these prayer prompts on the screen.